Welcome to another episode of Office Hours. This guest needs no introduction. Alex Filipenko has been a professor of astronomy at UC Berkeley for over three decades. He received his bachelor's in physics from UC Santa Barbara and his PhD in astronomy from Caltech in 1984. As one of the most distinguished professors in the department, Alex's research has been documented in more than 870 research papers and recognized for several major prizes, including the Breakthrough Prize in Fundamental Physics in 2005. Alongside all his academic accomplishments, Alex is also renowned at UC Berkeley for being able to distill incredibly technical concepts down to very understandable terms, winning the Best Professor Award on campus a record nine times. Unfortunately, due to technical difficulties, we are unable to publish a portion of the interview. But regardless, we have an exciting discussion for you all teed up. Hope you enjoy it. concept of dark energy. I know one of the things that you mentioned in your one of your previous TED Talks was that you have gravitational forces pulling galaxies and you know the particles within galaxies together. So that's why you don't see necessarily expansion within one galaxy, you know, between planets or stars. Right, right. That's so galaxies aren't expanding and clusters aren't expanding uh, because of dark matter. Yeah. yeah, so that's a dark form of matter that's gravitationally attractive. And it's the space between clusters of galaxies that's expanding more and more quickly. And that's because of dark energy. So there are these two complementary things, dark energy that constitutes 70% of all that there is in the universe, and dark matter is 25%. And then normal matter is sort of 5%. And easily visible normal matter is only half a percent. So we're, in a sense, the minority in terms of being the constituents of the universe. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, since between galaxies, that's where you're sort of seeing that sort of expansion. Uh, yeah, that's right. Between galaxies that are far from each other, isolated galaxies. Yeah. Not between galaxies and a cluster of galaxies, because a cluster of galaxies is gravitationally bound together by normal matter and dark matter. So then, is, is the... Is there a reasoning? I know you mentioned that it's, you're still unsure about it, but are you saying that dark energy is something that between you know, very distant galaxies is causing that sort of accelerating expansion? Yeah. So the dark energy is everywhere, um, even in this room where we're speaking, but there's so little of it that the gravity of Earth and the gravity of the sun in our solar system, yeah, it just overwhelms the tendency of otherwise empty space to expand and indeed to accelerate because of the dark energy. So our own galaxy and our local group of galaxies is not expanding, much less accelerating. It's just gravitationally bound. And that's because of normal matter and mostly because of dark matter. Mm -hmm. So with the natural next step in terms of what you're sort of researching and looking towards is kind of the origin of this dark matter, where this is sort of coming from. Yeah, we're, we're trying to find the origin and nature of the dark energy. And we do that by measuring more carefully the expansion history of the universe. So instead of just saying, well, five billion years ago, it was expanding more slowly than now, the universe has been accelerating the past five billion years. And prior to that, the first nine billion years, it was slowing down. We now are trying to measure the history 
sort of every billion years or half billion years. So what was it doing a billion years ago, two billion years ago, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve? By measuring the expansion history over more time intervals, we can set observational constraints on what the dark energy might be because some types of dark energy will produce a different history of expansion than other types. So by measuring the history of expansion, we can rule out some possible candidates for what the dark energy might be. And right now, the best bet is that the dark energy is simply the vacuum energy of space. So space, even the vacuum, has some energy associated with it. The density. Of yeah, yeah, the density of the vacuum. And it's not only not zero, but it's also a repulsive nature, which is really pretty weird. Yeah. And then I, I know in, in past talks you've also mentioned that there is some sort of like slight connection to the quantum theory of gravity. Um, can you kind of allude? Uh, yeah, so, you know, we think that the dark energy is everywhere, but it's a quantum process, either quantum fluctuations in the vacuum itself or maybe some new type of uh, quantum field of energy or something like that. But it's a, a very small-scale phenomenon that is everywhere, and so it dominates the large-scale behavior of the universe. So any quantum theory of gravity, by that I mean any theory of gravity that properly incorporates quantum physics, and that's one of the holy grails of theoretical physics now is a quantum theory of gravity, it has to account for the presence of this dark energy of a repulsive nature. Any dark, um, any quantum theory of gravity that categorically denies the possibility that the universe can be accelerating can be thrown out as not being a viable quantum theory of gravity because the universe is accelerating. So in that sense, the accelerating expansion of the universe provides some observational constraints for quantum gravity theories. And you know, the sexiest, most uh, visible such theories to the public are known as string or superstring theories or M theories. And already we can rule out some versions just by the mere fact that the universe's expansion seems to be accelerating. The problem is there are still many, many more candidate theories that are consistent with acceleration. And so we have not been able to really uh, sort of converge on the one and only quantum theory of gravity that's likely to be the correct one. Mm -hmm. It's probably some superstring theory, but even that could be wrong. Yeah. Yeah, Alex, uh, this is more of like a kind of overarching question, uh, something that would definitely sort of set sort of a base for our listeners, but the discipline of astronomy could be segmented into like a variety of different areas. Um, it can include observational, theoretical, you know, cosmology, stellar. You know, how do you sort of see um, the breakup of this discipline and where the uh, sort of areas that you focused Right. So there, as you say, a number of areas now. There's uh, primarily observational work, there's primarily theoretical work, and within theoretical work there are sort of two subsets. There's the pencil and paper theory and also equations that can be solved analytically. In other words, you can solve them by just fiddling around algebraically or with calculus or whatever, or with simple numerical uh, calculations like numerical derivatives or integrals or whatever. But then there's also theoretical work that is extremely computational in nature. 
for example, you might have a galaxy with 10 billion stars and another galaxy with 10 billion stars and you measure their gravitational interaction. And you do this with, for example, what are called n-body simulations, where you have n bodies interacting with n other bodies. And, you know, if you were to just do n-squared computations, that might be prohibitively expensive. But A, we now have supercomputers that might be able to do that, or parallel, you know, sets of computers. And B, people are coming up with algorithms that can greatly decrease the number of steps from n squared to n log n or even smaller numbers of computations. So with the incredible, you know, silicon revolution and the whole computer revolution, the field of computational astrophysics has become a growing field. And so the silicon revolution ironically has benefited not only observational astronomers because we have these incredible charge coupled devices and other solid state devices now that are able to get um, pictures of the sky over wide fields of view you know because there might be a billion pixels or something like that and the silicon revolution has led to just absolutely enormous advances in computational capabilities so those are three main areas uh, there are also, you know, within them, different areas like within observational work, there's optical observations and radio observations. Uh, there's also gravitational wave astrophysics now, which is not even electromagnetic in origin. So there are many ways of looking at the universe. And now with the gravitational waves, we're even hearing the universe because these vibrations are sort of audible frequencies, not that they actually affect your eardrum at all <laughs> I mean or you won't hear it I mean there's a tiny tiny effect but you won't hear it nevertheless it would it's a way of listening to the universe so my own work is primarily observational and primarily in the fields of optical observations and what we call the near ultraviolet and the near infrared so the wavelengths that are on the short wavelength side of violet light that would be ultraviolet and slightly longer wavelengths than red light, that's the infrared. So I'm a UV optical IR astronomer, so to speak. Gotcha. So that's exactly where you were able to see specifically the supernovae yeah. and the brightness as well. As yeah, I, I kind of like looking with my eyes at the universe that I study. Most objects that I study are far too faint to be seen with the eyes, even looking through an eyepiece of a big telescope. But the point is we can detect that light with, for example, uh, charge-coupled devices, CCDs, or things that are similar to the CMOS devices that are in digital cameras. And then I can look at them, and I know that if I had a powerful enough telescope or sufficiently good eyes, this is what I would see, and I kind of like that, you know. I come from a traditional uh, approach to astronomy. I mean, I got turned on to astronomy by looking through a telescope. Yeah. And then my undergraduate research project actually was getting pictures of a cluster of stars through a telescope. And then my graduate work, you know, dealt with optical light obtained through telescopes. And so that's just sort of, that's my thing. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Um, and then I, I think one other thing, uh, a lot of our listeners, especially leading up to this this discussion, uh, was very very interested in was specifically your proposal story. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> how I proposed to my wife. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I'm just a fanatic in terms of 
observing total solar eclipses when the moon completely blocks the bright disk of the sun, revealing the tenuous faint corona. There's just 16 total ones now throughout the world. The latest one being August 21st of this year, 2017. I had a Cal Discoveries travel group of about 400 people up in central Oregon with me. So, you know, the Cal Alumni Association has this travel group called Cal Discoveries Travel, and I, my wife and I led that group. But anyway, I travel the far corners of the world to see total eclipses, and I encourage any listener to, of this podcast to put at least one total solar eclipse on their bucket list because they're really fantastic, fantastically memorable and moving experiences. Okay, I know I sound a little bit like a nut, but people who didn't believe me who have now seen one say that, you know, I was right. They, they're really glad they saw one. Anyway, in 2005, my um, girlfriend at the time and I were on a cruise and she was sort of informally my fiance but she had pointed out that I'd never you know formally proposed so we were on a cruise in the South Pacific to see a total solar eclipse and in fact we were pretty near Pitcairn Island which is the famous place mutiny on the bounty you know where there was the, this mutiny and they the mutineers settled on Pitcairn Island which is this forlorn rock in the middle of the South Pacific and I was giving a talk to the other people on the cruise about the upcoming eclipse, what to look for, how to view it safely, and so on. And in that talk, which I encouraged my, my girlfriend to attend, and she actually wasn't feeling that well that day, so she wasn't going to attend, and she said, plus she's heard it before, and I said, well, you know, there's always something new, and I'd really like you to be present at this particular talk. So she was present, and in the middle of the talk, I actually proposed to her, and I kind of put her on the spot, because there were all these people in the audience. Yeah, you know. But I was pretty sure she would say yes, because she was the one who had given me a bit of a hard time that uh, I had never formally proposed, and yet here we were, here we were sort of informally engaged. So anyway, I proposed right in front of all these people, and she accepted. And we actually had been planning to get married on that cruise, despite the lack of a formal proposal. But then it turned out that it wouldn't have been legal. There's some rule that on a on a boat in French Polynesia or something like that, it, it, it didn't count. And yeah, so we would have to get yeah. married somewhere else anyway. And so we decided that afternoon, uh, the afternoon after the eclipse, uh, April 8th, 2005, to have a commitment ceremony. And so we had a little commitment ceremony. And um, I told this joke to my class that, uh, you know, I gave her not one, but two diamond rings. Actually, I gave her a pearl ring, but I also gave her two diamond rings because at the beginning and in the end of a total solar eclipse, there's this phenomenon known as the diamond ring effect when a little tiny bit of the sun is still showing and yet most of it is gone and so the corona, the faint corona is beginning to come out. So you get the corona forming a ring around the moon and then 
the little tiny bit of sunlight overexposed, either in your eye or in a photograph, it looks like a diamond, it looks like a jewel on this ring. And so it's called the diamond ring effect. And you get one at the beginning of totality and the end of totality. So I gave her two diamond rings plus a pearl ring. And we even, um, you know, we're thinking of making a, a, a t-shirt that said, I got engaged at the South Pacific total eclipse, but all I got was this diamond ring, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not a real diamond ring. Yeah. Anyway, so I got, an enga I got engaged um, a couple of days. Well, I mean, I proposed a couple of days before the eclipse during my lecture, and then we formally got engaged the day of the eclipse afterward. Yeah. I, I was so excited to hear about this story. <laughs> yeah. That awesome. Yeah, it's a pretty funny story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, in addition to, like, this big moment in your life, what have, you know, been other sort of big, shining, proud moments uh, looking back in your... Well, you know, um, finding that one supernova that changed my career was a... A defining moment yep. in my career for sure. It was a lucky break. I was at the right place at the right time. But I also took advantage of this opportunity. You know, I, I made the most of it. I can't say that for all opportunities. There have been some I regret not taking advantage of, or I was too busy, or whatever. I'm not beating myself up about it. But you know, be I, I give this advice to students, be be on the lookout for opportunities and then take advantage of them. Because I've known people, including myself, who have not taken advantage of, of some really great opportunities. And so things didn't turn out as well as they could have. Um, so be, be on the lookout for opportunities. I was greatly um, affected by my discovery of Saturn, as I mentioned. And then a real discovery that was made by my advisor when I was a senior as a physics major at UC Santa Barbara my advisor used classical physics to figure out that one of the moons of Jupiter, Io, should be molten on the inside and there should be all these volcanoes going off uh, on its surface. And he made this prediction just a couple of months before the flyby of the Voyager spacecraft past Jupiter. And he got it published just a couple of days before the flyby. And so he published this result. And then the flyby occurred, and the pictures showed all these erupting volcanoes on, uh, on Io. And it, it was a very proud moment for me because my advisor had done this amazing work. But it was extremely influential for my career because at that moment I saw how great a thrill this discovery was for him and, and vicariously through him I was living it because he was my advisor and I knew about this result and so it confirmed what I had thought when I was 14 years old and a freshman in high school that when you truly discover something new it must be a really incredible and astonishing feeling and I could see that he had this feeling and so that was a very profound moment in my development as an astronomer, as an astrophysicist. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And just being part of the two teams, I mean, I was the one person who was a member of both teams that discovered the accelerating expansion of the universe. That's pretty awesome. Never in my wildest dreams did I think I would be associated and so um, such a key figure in the a discovery that was of such fundamental importance. You know, uh, I, 
always hoped that I would contribute in some way toward the human understanding of science and the best you can kind of hope for realistically is that you'll add some little bit that it'll progress the science and then maybe someday someone will synthesize all these bits of progress into some new revolutionary idea like Newton or Einstein. But I didn't realistically think that I would be part of a transformation in our understanding of the universe and in fundamental physics and in, in indeed the 2015 um, the Breakthrough Prize in Fundamental Physics formally recognized all team members, unlike the Nobel Prize, which by tradition only recognizes one or two or at most three people. So that went to you know Saul Perlmutter and Brian Schmidt, the leaders of the two teams. And fortunately, also Adam Reese, my postdoctoral scholar, who was the first on Schmidt's team to really recognize what the data were telling us and I had sort of campaigned for a while in talks that I would give. I said that, you know, Adam deserves the Nobel Prize for this and he got it and that's great. But it's too bad in a sense that the Nobel Prize does not recognize the way science is done now. Not largely by rugged individuals, but by teams of people. And they, they simply don't recognize the teams by name. They don't recognize each individual, although the prize is given for that discovery, and that's, that's great, but they didn't recognize us individually, whereas the Breakthrough Prize did, and that was, that was a nice recognition. But really, it's not the recognition, it's the, it's the opportunity to discover something new, and, and something so fundamental and exciting and revolutionary. That was a, a gigantic gift in my life, in my career. I'm enormously grateful for having, in part, been at the right place at the right time. Again, had I not discovered that one supernova by accident almost, I probably wouldn't have gone into this field. I wouldn't have been asked to be a member of the teams and this would never have happened, you know? So it was a lucky break, but I also was a you know, a, a logical person for the teams to ask join, given my experience with supernovae, with optical spectroscopy, and my access to these big telescopes. But it was really a combination of things. Mm -hmm. So I'm just really lucky and really grateful. Yeah, yeah, and it seems like the study of uh, astronomy ends up being you know, the accumulation of just tiny tidbits of discoveries and information. And I'm sure it, it benefited so much to have that sort of visibility from being part of both. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. And, you know, um, it's a long road. You start out as an undergraduate taking a bunch of courses, and if you're lucky, you become part of a research project and you're, or you're given the opportunity to do some research. I was, as an undergraduate, able to do some research up at Lick Observatory where I was a tour guide during the day, but I got to use one of the telescopes at night. And then as a graduate student, you know, you don't take as many courses. You start really learning how to do research. And then as a postdoctoral scholar, well, you're no longer taking any courses. You're supposed to be honing your search skills. And then hopefully you get a faculty position as I did and you continue your research and then you start building up a team of people who help your research and whom you are helping in their budding young careers. So nowadays, you know, I have a big team and it seems like much of my time is spent raising money to fund my research team. Now, I like to come up with new ideas and new projects and I help with the observations, 
but I now don't spend a lot of my time calibrating and analyzing data. I make it possible for younger students to learn the tricks of the trade and I help them along and we discuss our research. I just had my team meeting today, for example, where I bring them pizza and they justify their existence the previous week. Yeah. You know, and we discuss the projects and stuff, but I'm now more of an enabler for new young careers. And that's a, a very gratifying thing too, when you see students and postdocs succeed. So for example, Ryan Foley, now an assistant professor of astrophysics at UC Santa Cruz, he was one of my graduate students 10 years ago. And he was actually, he and his team were actually the first to notice the optical glow caused when two neutron stars collided and produced gravitational waves that were detected last August 17th. The gravitational waves from a pair of neutron stars were um, detected. And his team was the first to see optical light emitted when these two neutron stars smashed together. And that's a pretty big discovery. And I'm very proud of him and what his team did. And I take partial responsibility, in a sense, for having nurtured his career when he was a graduate student. So that's very gratifying. Yeah, awesome. And then specifically, I know one question that's probably out of a lot of our listeners' minds is, you know, exactly what is Professor Filipenko working on now? Can you tell us a bit about... So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm working on on trying to determine this past history of the expansion more definitively. And our most recent result is that the expansion right now seems to be even faster than one would expect compared with other measurements. And if this discrepancy is correct, then it might mean that the dark energy is becoming stronger with time and is not just the energy associated with the quantum vacuum. That would be a really bizarre conclusion because it would mean that ultimately clusters of galaxies would get ripped apart and then galaxies would get ripped apart and then solar systems and stars and planets and us and even the atoms of which we are made. That's called the big rip. But it would mean that it's a type of dark energy that's getting stronger with time. It's really weird. We actually don't think that that's the case, but it might be the case. Or it might be that there's some new type of particle in the universe that's affecting the rate of expansion at early times and the extrapolation to now is wrong. And so that's why our measured comparison with what we measured now compared to what's predicted to be the case now could be wrong because the prediction is based on incomplete knowledge of of the contents of the universe. You know, mm -hmm. if there's a new type of particle affecting the um, expansion of the universe, then you'd get a different expectation for what the expansion rate should be now compared to our observations. It could be that our observations are right, and it's just the expectation was wrong because it was built on faulty assumptions. So we're, you know, we're trying to figure out now what the true expansion rate is and whether there's indeed a discrepancy with the expectation of what it should be based on some measurements. I don't want to go into the details now, but based on some other measurements of the early history of the universe. You know? Yeah. So that's one of the things I'm working on. And I'm also trying to find more black holes and I'm trying to understand how stars explode. Um, I want to find the optical light 
associated with colliding neutron stars. Uh, this last one, or this first one to have ever, ever been detected, occurred in the southern hemisphere, and I didn't really have access to a telescope that could look down there, but we're hoping that one will occur in the northern hemisphere, and we'll use the telescopes we have at Lick Observatory to look for the optical counterpart. Yeah. And then, you know, finally for students like myself yeah. who are interested in astronomy but not necessarily an astrophysics major, you know, what are potential things that you recommend um, I still look at other than obviously the, the Astro C10 course? Well, let me mention the Astro C10 course as just a, you know, a plug. Yeah. Uh, it's very popular. It has about 850 students. Um, I teach it once a year, usually in the fall semester. Uh, I'll teach it next in the fall of 2018. But it's a broad overview of astronomy. So you get really sort of an introduction to pretty much everything. Our solar system, stars, galaxies, the universe, black holes, cosmology, which is the study of the, um, the structure and evolution of the universe as a whole. So it's a great introduction. And it's, you know, super for both people who are already interested in science, but also to people who are not necessarily already interested. They have to satisfy their physical science requirements somehow. And many students find this an interesting and fun, fun way to satisfy that requirement. My philosophy is to bring astronomy in an interesting way to the students, to not bore them with you know, huge amounts of jargon. Obviously, there's going to be some jargon. There are going to be terms they have to learn. But really, you know, to introduce them to how science is done in general and how astrophysics is done, how did we come to some of the conclusions that we've come to, why do we think there are black holes? What are the interesting questions that are being worked on now? You know, how might we find a planet orbiting another star that might have life on it? Sort of, what are the cutting edge things? Um, not a bunch of rote memorization of the sizes of different yeah. planets and stuff, but really, how is science done? How is astrophysics done? What, are, what have we learned? And what are the newest things that we've learned or might learn in the, in the near future? So I think it's a fun course. A lot of other students do as well. And so I think that if someone has even a casual interest in science or astronomy, that's a great course to take. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure with you know all of the accomplishments that you've been able to touch on, as well as you know even like I said, winning best professor uh, record nine times, you've done like a fantastic job of influence, influencing so many students uh, within UC Berkeley um, who might not even be within this this discipline of astronomy, um, just to kind of expand their thought, be open minded, um, and, and then take in a lot of these concepts that uh, we discussed today. So oh yeah, it's uh, it's been very gratifying the response from students, you know being voted as professor and all that, which comes from the student students. Um, you know, I can see they really appreciate the thought, the energy, the time, and the passion, really, that I put into that course. Uh, it's been very gratifying to get that kind of response from students. Yeah. Yeah, again, Alex, uh, thank you so much. Uh, well, thank you. an absolute honor getting to talk uh, to a professor who has spent this much of his life um, within the field. So uh, I'm sure this is something that you know, can resound across the entire community of the Bear Minds listeners. But uh, again, really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much and go Bears.
Today's podcast was brought to you by the Bear Minds Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this discussion, tune into our other series, Founder Stories, where we interview prominent entrepreneurs around the Berkeley ecosystem. We urge our listeners to get involved. So get in contact with us at bearmindspodcast.com.